If you're tired of these promos, supporters get the podcast early and ad-free. Just go to donate.bogosity.tv for the links to sign up. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of November 19, 2023. The podcast that appealed an acquittal. This is your host, Shane Killian. Next week is Thanksgiving in the U.S., and the weekend after is my daughter's wedding, so there'll be no podcast for those two weekends. After that, there will be one, perhaps two more regular podcasts for 2023, and that'll be it until our year in review. But for now, let's alchemize the news of the bogus. Let's start off with some good news from Seattle. As we've covered, for some psychotic reason, police get to lie to you all they want. They'll lie to you and say there's evidence against you when there isn't. They may even forge evidence. They can tell you your fingerprints and DNA were at the scene, or witnesses saw you at the scene committing the crime. Police lie about these things routinely, to the point where these are a part of police training and even handbooks. And all of these techniques have been well documented as being effective in extracting false confessions from completely innocent people. Seattle hasn't completely put a stop to this, but it has at least curtailed it. Under the new policy, which went into effect on November 1, limited the use of police ruses to five situations. One, to de-escalate a situation. Two, to calm or provide comfort to a person. 3. To promote the safety of a person. 4. For scene management, whatever that is. And 5. To bring potentially violent situations to peaceful resolutions. This still leaves them some leeway to manipulate the rules. If they stop at someone's house and ask to search the place without a warrant, and the homeowner refuses, what's to stop them from saying that was a potentially violent situation, and they got to make up all sorts of evidence to say they'll arrest the homeowner if he doesn't allow the search. And besides, number five is just a different way of saying number one. So what's the purpose other than to allow the possibility for police abuse? They also gave some room for lies and investigations where there's a reasonable suspicion of a crime except for misdemeanor property crimes. Despite the wiggle room, there's still some good prohibitions. Everything about the officer's lie must be documented and approved by supervisors. They can't be used on minors, and they can't be broadcast over mass media. They can't make false promises about prosecutions, another tactic of extracting a false confession. They'll tell someone that if they talk, they'll convince the prosecutor or the judge to go easy on them, something they have neither the authority to do, nor the intention of doing. And it can't be a form of deception that, quote, falls outside the standards of civilized decency and seems grossly unjust to the observer. Victoria Beach, chair of the SPD's African American Advisory Council, said, quote, I think it's crazy that they had to make a policy not to lie. It is a step in the right direction. You know, we the community have lost a lot of trust in SPD, and I think this is bringing some back. Personally, I think it's crazy that they had to make an African-American advisory council in the first place. That should have been a red flag. 
One of the most egregious examples was in June of 2020, when Seattle police faked radio chatter, presumably regarding activities of the Proud Boys, in order to escalate the situation, claiming that the Proud Boys were armed and looking for a violent confrontation. The fake chatter had been approved by police leaders. That wasn't revealed for a year and a half, during which time the Proud Boys were raked through the mud. And, of course, the news that the radio chatter was fake didn't get the same play in the legacy media. Oh, and by the way, no one in the Seattle Police Department apparently lost their jobs or were made to pay because of the ruse. Which figures. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. One thing noticeably lacking in the policy is how it's to be enforced. If they lie to extract a confession or get approval for an unwarranted search, is it then thrown out of court? Can the person sue the city or the cops? Do they lose qualified immunity? There's nothing in the policy document that says. But maybe it's at least a step in the right direction. It's reprehensible that citizens can't lie to the cops even to protect their rights, while cops can lie to citizens to infringe on their rights all they want. That needs to change now and by a lot more than this policy does. If you're looking for a way to support this channel, but you don't have any spare cash and you can't stand ads, you can do so by generating your own cryptocurrency. Use the links at the bottom of the description to follow the link to odyssey.com to listen to the podcast and see all of my YouTube videos as well. Just watching videos will produce cryptocurrency for the creator and yourself. And since Odyssey is always monetized and never censored, you'll have no problem seeing all the videos from your favorite creators. You can also use the library credits you created Odyssey to tip creators and even purchase paid content. Earn library credits through various rewards, including daily view rewards and the number of shares and invites. And you can interact with creators in all sorts of ways, including like and dislike, comment, boost a post by supporting it, repost it, and share to other sites, all while earning crypto for the creator. Easily monetize yourself and your favorite creators using cryptocurrency without advertising. Use the link below to visit this channel on odyssey.com and see many of your other favorites there as well. And now we've got a Jan 6 case with a twist. John Sullivan has just been convicted on all charges of directly instigating and participating in the violence that broke out during the Jan 6 protests. The twist? Although he was posing as a Trump supporter, he was, in reality, a BLM Antifa activist and the founder of Insurgents USA, a left-wing violent extremist group, even though the FBI claimed that Antifa wasn't there on Jan 6. He was charged with and convicted of obstruction of an official proceeding, civil disorder, entering and remaining in a restricted building or grounds, disorderly or disruptive content in a restricted building or grounds, disorderly conduct in a Capitol building, parading, demonstrating, or picketing in a Capitol building, and aiding and abetting. He claimed during his trial to be a journalist who was just there to document what happened. The media paid him over $90,000 for his footage, including the shooting death of Ashley Babbitt. He was also interviewed by several outlets, including CNN's Anderson Cooper. 
The problem is, prosecution submitted into evidence his own videos showing his own voice not only participating in the riot, but instigating it. For example, here he is from the day before with one Mr. Ray Epps. We're not here to fight, man. We're here to... We're here to storm the Capitol, hell yeah. There are others, but they're only available from the media who bleeped all the cursing, and there's more bleeps than there is his voice. His original video's been taken off of social media. But he's clearly heard urging on the mob saying things like, Make those Trump supporters fuck shit up. I'm gonna side with anyone who is ready to rip this shit down. I brought my megaphone to instigate shit. And once they were inside, he said, quote, We did this together. Fuck yeah. We are all a part of this history. Let's burn this shit down. Little wonder, then, that the jury just took four hours to convict him. Prosecutor Brian Reeves said in court, quote, He will pose as different members of organizations, even those that have disavowed him. Juror John Stewart said, quote, We definitely believed he had intent to sort of incite the riot, and perhaps his intent was different from the other protesters, but that doesn't mean he didn't interrupt the proceedings. There was a lot of evidence he was trying to get the crowd riled up. We felt there was space for a citizen journalist, but we also didn't feel he was that. A journalist wouldn't kick down the fence. Sullivan tried to create all sorts of misinformation after the fact, including the lie that Andy No was seen in his video storming the Capitol, but afterwards fled to avoid prosecution. But the person he's referring to in his video is a different Asian man. Real journalists and documentarians just record things. They don't participate. And he didn't just participate. He instigated. His speech easily met the Brandenburg Standard for the Incitement of Eminent Lawless Action. Which is funny because certain others are in court as we speak claiming that Trump led it all. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age, so go to vpn.bogosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home, and don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. more on the major issues with Georgia's voting system, and I promise I'm going to try to keep this short, but there's a lot, as in 135 pages. That's the length of U.S. District Court Amy Totenberg's ruling in a lawsuit that's been going on for something like seven years. Way before the 2020 election, we covered the immense cybersecurity problems with Georgia's electronic voting system 
and how no one seemed to care, not even the governor. Several voters filed suit, and the state asked the judge to rule in its favor without a trial, but she didn't. She set a bench trial for January 9, but said it would be best if the two sides could reach an agreement and the Georgia legislature passed the laws necessary to fix the problem. The lawsuit was initially filed in 2017, but it covers not only the direct recording electronic system in use at the time, but the newer Dominion ballot marking device the state used starting in 2020. And the judge made sure to note, quote, The record evidence does not suggest that the plaintiffs are conspiracy theorists of any variety. Indeed, some of the nation's leading cybersecurity experts and computer scientists have provided testimony and affidavits on behalf of plaintiffs' case in the long course of this litigation. Just to quickly describe how the system works, Georgia had been using paperless touchscreen systems for 15 years, but changed to one that prints out a human-readable summary and a QR code that's actually read by the scanner to count the votes. One big problem is there's no way for the voter to verify that the QR code matches what's on the human-readable part. And before you tell them to just scan it with their phones, understand that taking a picture of your ballot is illegal. And even after it was made aware of immense cybersecurity vulnerabilities, it will not install any software updates before the 2024 election. The Secretary of State's office even referred to these vulns as, quote, hypothetical scenarios that can't work. I'm linking to the docket in the show notes just to give you an idea. Just keep scrolling. You scroll way down. Starting in August of 2017, way, way, way down to April of 2018, where you see that it's just page one of ten. Which is why the judge in her ruling said, quote, This election security case has been a long roller coaster ride, with many twists and turns. Like I said, I'm going to try and keep this short, so this isn't by any means all of them. I'm just hitting a few highlights starting with the testimony of cybersecurity expert Logan Lamb, who found that, just for the Center for Election Services website, he could access multiple gigabytes of election data, including thousands of files with private elector information, such as home addresses, birth dates, and more. Quote, In addition, Lamb was able to access, again via the Internet, the election management databases for at least 15 counties, databases used to create ballot definitions, program memory cards, and tally, store, and report all votes, as well as passwords that polling place supervisors used to administer corrections to the DRE machines. Lamb immediately reported his findings, and no action was taken, not even after one of his colleagues was able to repeat Lamb's process and access the same election data. A few days later, the FBI was notified and took possession of the server. Quote, A few months after that, four days after this lawsuit was originally filed in Fulton County Superior Court, all data on the hard drives of KSU's server was destroyed by KSUCES. The next month, on August 9, 2017, a day after this action was removed to this court, all data on the hard drive of a secondary server, which contained similar information, was also destroyed by KSUCES. Yes, they deliberately destroyed evidence. 
And if you're wondering how such a thing can happen in the first place, note that the server was running on Windows XP in 2000. In 2019! Way outdated! It was impossible to install security updates because Microsoft was no longer updating them. She ruled. For years, the state had failed to implement critical software patches, including a software patch that was necessary to address a vulnerability that ethical hacker and cybersecurity specialist Harry Hursty discovered in 2006. The state defendant's own expert at that time, Dr. Michael Seamus, described this particular vulnerability as one of the most severe security flaws ever discovered in a voting system up to that time. And she found the state's response to that data breach to be, quote, slow and ineffective. As for those QR codes, quote, Dr. Alex Halderman demonstrated how malicious actors could potentially infiltrate the voting system through various cyber attacks, including attacks that would cause particular votes to be changed or deleted, or enable the alteration or manipulation of the unencrypted QR codes. In its 2020 PI order, the court noted that Dr. Halderman's findings were consistent with a broad consensus among the nation's cybersecurity experts that electronic voting systems, such as the BMD system, are susceptible to malware. The same experts also agreed that these vulnerabilities take on greater significance in the context of a BMD system like George's because it relies on unauditable QR codes for counting votes that cannot be read and verified by the voters before tabulation. In fact, she found that not even the state could properly audit the votes. In addition to the web servers, they weren't even keeping the Dominion machines up to date. Quote, A Dominion software upgrade was available that would enable the scanners to capture voter selections as reflected in the human-readable text of the printouts, i.e. full-face ballots, which voters could read and verify, instead of the QR codes. In its order, the court remarked that it could not fathom why the state would not at least be moving towards consideration of that option. Halderman identified seven primary vulns, quote, Attackers can alter the QR codes on printed ballots to modify voter selections. Anyone with brief physical access to the BMD machines can install malware onto the machines. Attackers can forge or manipulate the smart cards that a BMD uses to authenticate technicians, poll workers, and voters, which could then be used by anyone with physical access to the machines to install malware onto the BMDs. Attackers can execute arbitrary code with supervisory privileges and then exploit it to spread malware to all BMDs across a county or state. Attackers can alter the BMD's audit logs. Attackers with brief access to a single BMD or a single poll worker card and PIN can obtain the countywide cryptographic keys, which are used for authentication and to protect election results on scanner memory cards. And a dishonest election worker with just brief access to the ICP scanner's memory card could determine how individual voters voted. So we're talking about the ability of anyone with even momentary physical access, which would presumably include voters, to install malware that can execute arbitrary code elevated to root access and spread malware all over the county or state and take control of the election. They can even alter the audit log to hide their tracks.
Is there any way to make a system even less secure? Also, quote, Dr. Halderman explains that the risk of ballot manipulation is far greater when the BMDs are used for all in-person voters like they are in Georgia versus when BMDs are only used for a small fraction of voters, e.g. voters who may require special accommodations. When only a small subset of voters use BMDs, even if an attacker changes every BMD ballot, the attack could only affect the outcome of contests with very narrow margins, which means that successful fraud would usually require cheating on such a large fraction of BMD ballots that it would likely be discovered. Thus, jurisdictions where only a fraction of voters use BMDs are a less appealing target than states where most voters use BMDs. And he said that these attacks could be committed by a variety of adversaries, including domestic political actors, election insiders, voters, and hostile foreign governments. Quote, and critically, because the Coffee County election software and voting data was uploaded to the Internet, it was left open to manipulation by other non-authorized individuals, organizations, or adversary nations. Halderman concluded, quote, The ICX BMDs are not sufficiently secured against technical compromise to withstand vote-altering attacks by bad actors who are likely to attack future elections in Georgia. The ICX BMDs can be compromised to the same extent and as or more easily than the DREs they replaced. Despite the addition of a paper trail, ICX malware can still change individual votes and most election outcomes without detection. The ICX's vulnerabilities also make it possible for an attacker to compromise the auditability of the ballots by altering both the QR codes and the human-readable text. Such cheating could not be detected by an audit or a hand count, since all records of the voters' intent would be wrong. Using vulnerable ICX BMDs for all in-person voters, as Georgia does, greatly magnifies the security risks compared to jurisdictions that use hand-marked paper ballots but provide BMDs to voters upon request. The critical vulnerabilities in the ICX and the wide variety of lesser but still serious security issues indicate that it was developed without sufficient attention to security during design, software engineering, and testing. CISA published an advisory where they confirmed these vulns, but said there was no evidence they were exploited. But as Alderman said, how would they know? There'd be no way for it to show up in any auditor recount. As for the Coffee County breach, not only did the Secretary of State COO Gabriel Sterling deny that it ever happened, but he thought that because, quote, the individuals the Secretary of State's investigators had interviewed had not been truthful. The Secretary's office learned about the breach early on and had been continuing to investigate the matter. I haven't even scratched the surface, but let's just skip on to where the judge ruled. In sum, Plaintiffs argue that the record shows that inherent design flaws, critical security failings, futile protective measures, advanced persistent threats, widely leaked voting software and data, extensive outsider access to the voting system and its operational environment, continued use of that equipment in subsequent elections, and persistent inaction by defendants have manifested plaintiffs' concerns to a degree that seemed unthinkable years ago. Skipping a whole bunch of pages where she does some procedural things like confirm the plaintiffs have standing, aren't moot, and have claims that their fundamental rights were violated, 
let's get on to where she concludes. The importance of the security, reliability, and functionality of state election systems, classified by the U.S. Homeland Security Department as critical national infrastructure, cannot be overstated in a world where cybersecurity challenges have exponentially increased in the last decade. The constitutional voting claims raised here involve complex evidence, legal issues, and events heated by the political stresses of the era. So this case is going forward. Hopefully this will be a wake-up call to other states regarding the provably insecure voting machines so many of them use. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttletwins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain, or regulations passed in the name of safety, and fundamental concepts of liberty. And as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. And now it's time to put in the agony booth this week's Biggest Bogon Emitter. Wikipedia used to be great. A successful experiment showing that crowdsourcing could give more accurate, comprehensive, and up-to-date information than professional encyclopedias. But it ended up being taken over by an increasingly centralized group of master editors who have wrested the site to twist certain articles to fit their own political agenda. Case in point, their entry on the Twitter files, which we covered in depth as they happened. Despite its begging-for-money banner they put up every so often, which nowadays is mostly for show, most of Wikimedia's funding comes from Google, Apple, Microsoft, and many others. They made over $160 million last year, making them one of the top three open-source projects in terms of revenue behind the Linux Foundation and Mozilla. The fourth-place project, the Eclipse Foundation, isn't even close. Money Talks so it seems to be run more for the benefit of big tech than the little guy. On November 1, Matt Taibbi and his fellow journalists Barry Weiss and Michael Schellenberger received an Excellence in Investigative Journalism Award from the National Journalism Center, Dao Feng, and the Angela Foundation. In his acceptance speech, Taibbi said, quote, The journalism profession has become hopelessly politicized in recent years. Editors now care more about narrative than fact. And, as many of the people in this room know, there are now fairly extreme penalties for failing to tow party lines. If you're not recognized by certain authoritative organizations, your work will not appear in features like Google News, Facebook's news feed, the For You bar on Twitter, or in many institutional search engines. This has the effect of de-amplifying politically unorthodox content. 
These sites are essentially consigned by algorithm to a separate set of Dewey Decimal shelves in the basement of the world's library. In an instant, the Twitter files transform Taibi in the eyes of the media from an old-school ACLU liberal to a deranged right-wing extremist in the pocket of Elon Musk. He was even brought into a congressional committee hearing alongside Schellenberger and absolutely roasted. Wikipedia was absolutely compliant in all of this. A master editor by the handle Specifico kept removing the mention of Taibbi's award from his Wikipedia page, noting, quote, This is a partisan group of no distinction, not a notable or credible award. KMC Cook wrote a two-paragraph justification of the price's inclusion on the talk page, to which Specifico responded, quote, I reverted the edition of this item. Please see the reason in my edit summary. It should not be re-added prior to consensus for inclusion. Sergicus responded, quote, I am curious. How does one determine that an award is not credible? Two weeks later, Specifico hasn't responded. KMC Cook made other responses to others, showing numerous outlets announcing and covering the award. He also wrote, no need for the edit that was intended to undercut the achievement. As Taibi notes, the Dow Prize is a significant new prize for old-school, fact-based reporting. The journalism profession has become hopelessly politicized in recent years. Wikipedia does not need to follow that trend. Specifico had previously made the entry with the completely unsupported claim that the Twitter files were provided by Elon Musk himself, something that has never been documented and Taibbi himself has refused to acknowledge. In the talk page, Specifico disparaged the First Amendment and the policy of journalists not revealing their sources. When pressed on the talk page, he said he was exercising, quote, a privilege reserved for editors who remove vandalism as defined and not editors who deny the validity of content and sourcing. And this is how one very powerful Wikipedia editor fought with the larger user consensus to have misinformation directly put into Wikipedia about a major issue. Like the rest of the media, they do everything they can to choke off any information that goes against their narrative. And they do all of this with the gall to continue asking you for donations that they don't need. So all of that makes Wikipedia this week's biggest bogani emitter. I want to tell you about the eyeglasses I've been wearing for years. As people can see on my videos, I have a very strong prescription, which makes glasses more expensive, especially when I need computer glasses, reading glasses, prescription sunglasses, and most expensively, progressive lenses for general everyday wear. To save money while still getting quality glasses, I get them from Fermu. In fact, I just got a pair of progressives with high-index aspherical lenses and a nice pair of frames my wife loves for just over $100. It would have been $500 to get them through my eye doctor. Not only do they look good, the glasses are durable. I've worn many pairs for several years without problems. All orders come with a 30-day return policy, a 3-month warranty, and one-on-one -on -one customer service. Go to Firmu, that's F-I-R-M-O-O dot TV anytime you need quality glasses at a low price.
Once again, that's fernmu.bogosity.tv. And now let's downregulate this week's Idiot And it's Sarah Silverman again for more bogosity in her anti-AI case that the judge smacked down. It's part of the overall trend in the courts. People sue, whining that their publicly released works were stolen for use in AI training. We've covered others, like the suit brought against Stability AI, Midjourney, and, for some bizarre reason, DeviantArt. That case has mostly been dismissed, with just a few issues remaining that may not last much longer. The judge in that case ruled, The cases plaintiffs rely on appear to recognize that the alleged infringer's derivative work must still bear some similarity to the original work or contain the protected elements of the original work. I mean, if AI training isn't a transformative use, then there's no such thing as a transformative use! They're still free to try and support their claim that Stable Diffusion has, quote, compressed copies of their artworks and its models invoked by user prompts, but since that isn't actually how it works, they're not likely to prevail. Back to Silverman's case, which is another one we've been following against OpenAI, who makes ChatGPT, and Meta, who makes Llama. The plaintiffs claim that the text generated by Llama copies their works, but according to Reuters, the judge told them, quote, When I make a query of Llama, I'm not asking for a copy of Sarah Silverman's book. I'm not even asking for an excerpt. The judge pointed out that simply being able to write a review of a book or summarize it is not the same thing as creating an infringing work. And they even said that Llama itself would be an infringing work. The judge said that that, quote, would have to mean that if you put the Llama language model next to Sarah Silverman's book, you would say they're similar. That makes my head explode when I try to understand that. Of course, if you actually look at any sort of machine learning model, you'll see indecipherable noise. Maybe they aren't so dissimilar after all. The recent proceedings were just about Meta's motion to dismiss. OpenAI has a separate one which will be argued next month. It looks like that one might have most of its counts dismissed, too. Unlike Silverman herself, these are slimming down fast. Yeah, I said it. Deal with it. I mean, seriously, this is like saying that J.K. Rowling read my book before she wrote the Harry Potter series, therefore she infringed my copyright. Because every book is in some way affected by all of the books the author has ever read. If anything, Silverman's contribution is far less since the AI has read more books than any human possibly could. Hopefully, judges in future cases will be as sensible as these. But there's always the very real worry that, like with the copyright status of APIs, we'll get an excellent ruling from a judge that's overturned by a stupid or corrupt appellate court. Seriously, if this is the best argument Sarah Silverman and the other plaintiffs can come up with, they have less than nothing, and it makes them look privileged, entitled, and worthy of this week's... Idiot Extraordinaire! Well, that 
wraps up this If You Think It Stinks, Keep Your Big Mouth Shut edition of the Bogosity Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please go to donate.bogosity.tv for several ways to support and discord.bogosity.tv to join the discussion. Subscribe at Patreon or Subscribestar and you can listen early and ad-free. Thank you for listening. Remember, no podcast the next two weeks. Until next time, here's a quote from Robert Heinlein. Do not handicap your children by making their lives easy. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. <laughs>